A revolt at the New York Times, Mayor Pete in the hot seat, and Biden's bounce. We will discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today, and by some unlikely confluence of events, I am here in his stead. But it's not just me. I'm joined today by the Thomas L. Rhodes Fellow at the National Review Institute, Dominic Pino, staff writer Madeline Kearns, and the editor of National Review Online, Phil Klein. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Garner's Modern English Usage from Oxford University Press and ExpressVPN. If for some reason you are not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you do like what you hear, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. And if you don't like what you hear, please forget I said anything. The New York Times staffers have decided to stand up for their professional integrity. Low! Turns out last week, one of the uh, representatives for the union, represents New York Times writers, Susan DeCarva, wrote an open letter expressing her frustration with the paper's, quote, anti-trans bias and the implied threat of discipline against those who dissent against this climate of terror at the New York Times. To quote from her letter, quote, employees are protected in collectively raising concerns that conditions in their employment constitute a hostile work environment. This was a concern explicitly raised in the letter at issue. So what they're talking about here is essentially that if they write or cover if, uh, this issue, trans issues, if they cover it like a journalist should cover it, it, it constitutes an unsafe work environment, like it's an OSHA violation to cover these topics. And you're obliged to speak out against it publicly and attack your employer that pays your salary, uh, even though this is not hiding anything. This is all in print. It's not as though these issues are being covered up. But because you're, you're in your head about something, you have to speak about it. Well, apparently not, according to a number of very prominent reporters, some of whom are household names if you read the paper regularly, who wrote a revolt against this condition. And to quote briefly from their letter, in response to Susan DeCarva, they wrote, factual, accurate journalism that is written, edited, and published in accordance with the time standards does not create a hostile workplace. Your letter appears to suggest a fundamental misunderstanding of our responsibilities as journalists. Regretfully, our own union leadership now seems determined to undermine the ethical and professional protections that we depend on to guard the independence and integrity of our journalism. It's about time we saw some spine on the part of uh, um, reporters at this institution, Madeline. Uh, what's your reaction? Yes, yeah, so I have absolutely no doubt that the New York Times is a hostile work environment. I just don't think it is a hostile work environment for the reasons that the union president suggested. Uh, we've seen this at the Times for years now. Uh, in 2020, there was the, the revolt uh, after Tom Cotton had an op-ed. We had Barry Weiss's departure. We had the resignation of Donald McNeil, their health and science reporter. So we, we know that it's a difficult place to to feel comfortable uh, as, a, as a journalist. And the trans issue is just one of many examples of that. Of course, I think what's really going on here is there's, there's, there's two things. It's, it's an insight into what, what's going on at the Times. It's also an interesting insight into what's going on at the country at large with the trans issue. I'll deal with the, the first first. Um, and what's going on at the Times, I think, is that you have this activist wing of journalists who see themselves first and foremost, not as Orwell put it, as people who are tasked with reporting or commenting on what is right under their nose, but with people who are tasked with this incredible moral self-importance. So most of us as journalists, we're, we're, we consider ourselves pretty lucky 
if anybody remembers what we said by the end of the week. But these guys, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about what are people going to say about us in a hundred years? You know, are we on the right side of history? Are, are we defending our cause? And of course, if you, if you make that your primary focus and not telling the truth or engaging with things in an appropriately journalistically skeptical way, you, you can really get off the rails very quickly. But the second thing I would say is it's about time that the New York Times took this trans issue seriously. I mean, it's been on our radar at National Review for years, five years, as long as, long as I've been here. And it's really, normally what happens in, with good journalism is they get ahead of what other people have noticed and they say, hey, look at this crazy thing going on over here. We should look into that. And they break the story. The New York Times did not break the trans story. The New York Times is behind everybody else on this. They are reacting. They are, they are forced to engage because of what's going on. And we've seen this especially in Europe, um, at places like Sweden and the UK, where transgender treatment for young people has been paused and the, the media is all over it in a, in a journalistic and sceptical way. And the Times is, is, is merely acknowledging that there's a controversy. I wouldn't even say that they're, they're publishing really challenging stuff. They're just acknowledging that there is a controversy. This is a live debate. And of course, that is the one thing the activists cannot stand because their entire strategy up to this point has been to prevent that debate, to not acknowledge that any legitimate concern about this issue. That's really fascinating, the degree to which they've convinced themselves that this is some sort of historical legacy that they're preserving and that in a century hence, they will be regarded as either on the right or wrong side of history. I like that. Phil, what do you think about that? Is this, is this something so grand? or merely social pressure and the fear that they will be confronted at the local brasserie with the, the evidence of their subversion? I mean, I think that what's happening right now is that the New York Times and other reporters at the New York Times realize that you basically cannot run a newsroom if some people could say that something that's published in the normal course course of publishing a newspaper is suddenly um, a is an actual assault that's tantamount to, to some form of violence. And the issue with the the um, cotton letter and the backlash over that, which then in that case, um, the New York Times threw several editors under the bus, in that case it basically New York Times um, leadership clearly realized that you can't actually, from a, just a logistical management perspective, there's no way to have it so that any one person could essentially run the newsroom, um, bully other journalists and other reporters uh, by claiming that just covering an issue is um, in itself problematic. And, and let's keep in mind, it's not as if the New York Times is suddenly printing all the truth on uh, transgender therapy and their, you know, conversion therapies and, and puberty blockers. They're not actually doing that. I mean, on a daily basis, the uh, New York Times runs stories which overwhelmingly affirm the sort of gender ideology that you find in any other left-wing publication. It's just literally, if they publish anything that 
is either critical or raises questions about the gender ideology narrative, um, that alone is sort of enough to be considered tag um, the New York Times as somehow anti-trans or some sort of right-wing outlet. Um, and it happens whenever they publish anyone. I mean, it, it's, it happened to Barry Weiss when Brett Stevens had ever run anything that was, was sort of mildly critical of one of the beloved issues. It, it, it freaked out. And there's this sort of narrative on the left that the New York Times has to lower its standards to let um, uh, conservatives in to try to show that they're not biased. Uh, so it, it's, it's completely bizarre, but they basically, it's sort of um, the same thing with universities insofar as left-wingers think that the New York Times and the mainstream media and academia, those are their places, which is why they get so violently angry um, whenever there's any view that's expressed, uh, that's contrary, even if the overwhelming majority of the views completely are consistent with their beliefs. Yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking the degree to which they've just dipped their toe into covering actual medical science. This is the, 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 the level of medical oversight in, in this particular field is, is appalling, but it's, it's starting to ramp up, and they're covering it because it's a news story, and just, just barely covering it is enough to send these people into apoplectic fits. Uh, Dominic, is this a sign that the New York Times is going to break out of its captivity, its ideological captivity, or is this just a, uh, a hiccup on its long road to serfdom? As Phil was saying, it, it is it is always funny. Uh, this these, these controversies do seem to break out every once in a while with the New York Times that somehow uh, it is insufficiently left-wing, or even worse than that, it is somehow subversively right-wing in the way that is only detectable to a very small group of uh, progressive activists. And um, uh, this is, of course, not true. I think we all know uh, which side of the political divide the New York Times comes down on, and they will continue to do so as they have since, well, at least the 1950s, because uh, William F. Buckley Jr. in the uh, mission statement for National Review magazine from 1955 specifically calls out the left-wing bias of the New York Times. So it's not like it's a new thing either. Um, I think uh, I, I really liked Maddie's comments as well. Um, it reminded me of a famous line from the British sitcom uh, Yes Minister uh, that says, uh, uh, diplomacy is about surviving until the next century and politics is about surviving until Friday afternoon. And um, uh, this is very much the same thing with 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 journalism. Uh, the idea that that these specific things are going to be in existence for such a long time. I mean, in the age of social media, you know, we happen to be re recording this on a Friday, but it's just uh, just about surviving until this afternoon, quite honestly. Um, and um, and so uh, you know, there is that that line about how journalism, you know, journalists write the first draft of history, which is in itself a sort of overly grandiose view of what journalism is. But these people seem to think they're writing the final draft of history, uh, which is, which is really, uh, which is really quite something. So, um, so yeah, you know, an important part of journalism as well, aside from the observational aspects is also that it's supposed to be about uh, intellectual debate and uh, doing that in good faith and uh, certainly part of that is reporting the facts, but part of that is, is, is debating about how best to interpret those as well. 
And uh, that is something that is just completely uh, left out of this uh, activist-driven narrative around the trans issue. I don't know if I'm stepping out of line, but I do think I'd like to commend to our readers uh, a piece on this by James Kerchick in Tablet. It's absolutely fantastic. It's called Writers of the World Denounce. Uh, And he parallels the way in which uh, the Soviet practice of denunciation by committee, this formless condemnation designed to anathematize dissent, mirrors in really creepy ways what we see from places like the New York Times. And the degree to which these claims of harm are limited to the metaphysical. And it's all linguistic, which is part of the reason why you should be reading Brian A. Garner. Many listeners will know from his regular column with National Review, which is widely considered to be one of the preeminent authorities on grammar and style. The fifth edition of his style guide, Garner's Modern English Usage, is now available from Oxford University Press, and it is truly an essential book for editors, writers, and anyone interested in writing more effectively. It's made up of over 7,000 entries, including over 1,000 new to this edition on writing topics ranging from how to use serial commas, the lost battle between self-deprecating and self-deprecating, and when it's okay to use the word literally to mean figuratively. Brian writes with real humor and wit in hopes that his book will help you sound grammatical but relaxed, refined but natural, correct but unpedantic. Do check that out. Dominic, we have been treated this week to the torment of Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Um, He and his team... Over the course of the last three weeks, since the derailment uh, in East Palestine, Ohio, of this uh, train and the subsequent controlled burn of the chemicals that were released as a result, Secretary Pete and his team have innovated new and exciting ways to mismanage a crisis. Um, yesterday, his, his uh, press secretary was making the rounds on site. Pete made an appearance in East Palestine, um, generally dodging the press, and his press secretary had this big display for three and a half minutes where she refused to answer questions on camera, um, saying, you know, I'll talk to you, but I won't talk to you on camera, which just compounds the impression that anybody's gotten from his performance over the last couple of days that he's a fish out of water here, very uncomfortable, and really doesn't have any idea how to navigate this situation, which isn't really a U.S. Department of Transportation situation. It hasn't been for a while. It's an EPA issue, but he just has the stink of a wounded gazelle on the Serengeti. He smells like there's blood in the water, and the press is all over him as a result. I would be too. Dominic, you had a fantastic piece on the website on nationalreview.com on how the uh, preliminary investigation by the NTSB has demonstrated that all the policy recommendations that Pete Buttigieg came out with initially, and the people around him came out with initially, have no bearing on this accident. Yeah, the... Uh, response from the Department of Transportation has actually been quite similar to the progressive response uh, whenever there's a mass shooting, which is to call for a bunch of policies that you wanted anyway that really have nothing to do with what actually happened. And uh, what we're seeing is is that exact same thing playing out here. Uh, rather than waiting for the NTSB to actually issue their final report, uh, because they're the ones with all the evidence who are who are going through uh, going through what actually happened and then making some recommendations based on that, uh, which is, by the way, how that process usually works out. And this is something Buttigieg was actually correct about, which is that ordinarily secretaries of transportation are not involved in these kind of things and are not expected to go show up uh, as the, you know, the, the healer in chief, or in this case, I guess, secretary of healing 
to show up at, at the site of a uh, of a disaster. Um, but as you said, he was sort of pushed into this uh, by by the by the press and 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 showed up and gave this very unreassuring uh, appearance. He was very stiff and awkward and stammering in a lot of his comments. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very strange. Uh, and, uh, and I think it shows why, you know, we should probably not be elevating uh, former mayors of South Bend to lead cabinet departments uh, solely because they're supposedly good speakers. Uh, but although he didn't demonstrate that very well. Secretary um, of Healing sounds like something a Marianne Williams administration would elevate to a cabinet position. Yeah, that's many true. Ideas. <laughs> that's true. Somebody has to fight the dark psychic forces, though. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So, uh, what we know about this investig, uh, what we know about this accident so far shows that uh, one of the top talking points from the Biden administration, which has come from the White House and has come from the DOT, is that the Trump administration set this up because they didn't adopt a breaking regulation that the Obama administration had proposed back in 2015. Here's the actual story of what happened with that. In 2015, the Obama administration or Congress passed a law and asked for a a report that would investigate whether this new braking system, which are called ECP brakes, uh, whether they work well in, in emergency situations. The National Academy of Sciences did a study on it. They did a report and they said that the results were inconclusive on the safety effects. And so uh, replacing uh, current train brakes with these ECP brakes would be very expensive. And so what the Trump administration did was it said, okay, well, the uh, benefits are the benefits are non-existent. The costs are high. Uh, we, we're not going to pursue this any further. Just common sense, cost-benefit thing. Uh, and um, regardless of any of the rest of that, uh, the regulation in question would have never applied to the East Palestine train in the first place, which is something that the NTSB chairwoman has said. This is not some right-wing fanatic at National Review telling you this. The NTSB chairwoman has said this because, uh, and in and, and directly contradicting the uh, one of the deputy press secretaries from the White House. Um, so again, this is the the uh, Democratic politicians are not helping here. And uh, and they're they're spreading, uh, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that would be called disinformation if it was coming from anyone else. This is a really important point, Phil. Really early on in this disaster, union types started coming out and instantly saying this was about precision schedule railroading, which is just this automated feature of railroading that puts downward pressure on employment, so unions don't like it. And they insisted it was a sticking point in the strike talks last year, but ahead of this negotiation over the possible rail strike, but it wasn't. The negotiations were stuck over um, paid sick leave and, and, and pay and time and what have you. It had nothing to do with this, at least not publicly. And then they come out, as Dominic says, with this break system. And now Pete's allies go to, the, go to Politico and start trying to trigger the partisan reflexes in reporters. The headline is that Pete's people are, quote, frustrated at GOP attacks. And there's a one senior Democrat, unnamed, who said, Pete Buttigieg has taken a lot of bullets for the president on this. So they're trying to trigger some sort of sympathy for him. Will it work? Because it seems like it's pretty self-evident that we're just witnessing a lot of incompetence from the secretary. Yeah, and and look, I mean, to back up a bit, and Pete Buttigieg is not there because he's some expert on transportation or because he's some master executive. He's up there because 
he did well in Iowa, but because he had no resonance with working class voters and black voters, he couldn't compete for the Democratic nomination. So he made a well-timed endorsement of Joe Biden, and Joe Biden owed him one, um, and so gave him a cabinet position of which he was obviously clearly not qualified for in any way. Um, Now, with that said, as conservatives, we should recognize that the uh, cabinet secretary, that government isn't in charge and can't control everything. There, There was nothing necessarily that he could have done differently within his job as Secretary of Transportation that would have prevented this disaster or not. However, when you're a liberal and you run on the idea of government as the savior, of government being able to solve every problem, um, it's then harder when you're in power to slink away and say, oh, well, I had nothing to do with this. I'm just the Secretary of Transportation. Um, And it's harder still to then sort of pull a disappearing act, wash your hands of it, and not show this lean in and show the compassion. So at least you're there. I mean, basically, even if it wasn't his fault, if he was there uh, the next day giving a briefing to reporters, it would have made it seem like he's really on top of things, at least symbolically, even if ultimately there was very little he could have done. Um, but he sort of hasn't understood this, and he, he's had this weird attitude of, well, I'm going to, um, during a massive supply chain um, event, I'm going to take months of paternity leave. Um, and he's saying that, um, and, you know, he's ignoring and blowing up reporters. Um, there was a viral video where he blew off a daily caller reporter approached him on the street because he decided that was his time of day where he just wanted to have his nice walk um, at night. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, don't, you know, like some sort of British, like Downton Abbey character or something. Like, don't disturb me during, this is my... You know, this is my afternoon physical. I can't be disrupted. Um, And so I I think it it sort of, it just kind of shows that he's, I mean, he's very young and inexperienced, and it, it frankly shows. Madeline, this is a super loaded question, so I apologize from the beginning. But nevertheless, what do Democrats see in Pete Buttigieg? And is his image dented at all by his performance over the last three weeks? Well, I mean, as, as for, for what they see in him, you'd have to ask one of them. <laughs> I, really, I, I apologize in advance I'm really for the loaded not, question. You can, you can at least have it if you want. There's no wrong answer. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, he has a sort of vague charisma or presentability. or It's all very glib, though. That's the problem. And you say, have, have the the last two weeks damaged him. But I think it's, I think it goes back further than that. I mean, he's lurched from crisis to crisis. Now, granted, not all of it's been his fault, but we had the FEA computer system failure. We had supply chain issues, the Southwest fiasco. Um, and, and I think what really strikes me is, look, this is a former and perhaps future presidential candidate. 
why is he frustrated and exasperated and, and baffled by the fact that he is a political target? Of course he's a political target. He should be getting in front of this. He should be seeing the attacks on his reputation and countering them. Obviously, he wasn't helped at all by Trump's uh, visit to East Palestine, handing out bottles of water and, and <laughs> making the suggestion that it wasn't safe to drink the water. Um, it's safe but, to drink no, Trump it, it's, water. It's been a very low... It's lower quality water <laughs> Exactly. <as> well. <laughs> Yes, and, and you can eat McDonald's, of course. But, um, yeah, look, he he's given a very lethargic uh, performance here. He's he's verging on entitled in terms of uh, in terms of not rising to the occasion and saying, well, look, people don't normally do this. Okay, but you, you're a big name. People know who you are. They expect something from you, especially as the situation unfolds. Um, and there's been a lot. He's talked about accountability, but there's been a lot of, pointing fingers um and it's not very impressive i, I do uh, gotta I say, say i do gotta say uh, to go off what phil was saying you know and, and there has been all these transportation related things going on not one of them has been his fault okay so it's important to, <laughs> not one of them right but the but he problem seems to have is taken ownership of them exactly the problem is like phil said when you're a progressive and you run on the idea that government is all powerful and that and that you know i'm going to make everything better and also the idea that you're going to have a high profile in this role i mean your your basic job as secretary of transportation in every other administration is make sure that absolutely no one knows who you are i mean think <laughs> quick name three former secretaries of transportation you can't do it. Nobody knows who these people are. Okay, so so uh, you know the fact Rayla that he's uh, and Mitch McConnell's wife. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The only reason anyone knows about about uh, uh, about Elaine Chao is because of Trump's ridiculous racist attacks on her. But um, but yeah, I think uh, I, I think it's this just shows sort of the, the one of these problems uh, that can be created politically for this for progressive ideology, which is that if you say that government can actually makes makes everything better and that all of a sudden things don't go right, people are going to come back and blame you for it, even if you had nothing to do with it. If you want to know what Pete Buttigieg's political appeal is, um, because I had covered, it's that essentially he appealed to a segment of the Obama coalition. Um, and I had covered Obama um, in Iowa in 08 and then Pete Buttigieg in uh, 2020. Um, and the similarity was essentially there's a certain number of people, young people who feel like they want uh, somebody who comes from a younger generation, not the older cynical people, somebody who's a bit more optimistic and positive, not as angry. Um, and it appeals to a certain segment of younger voters and upscale white voters. The problem was obviously that Obama was able to take that victory in Iowa and then combine that with near universal support among black voters. And that's what made him so formidable um, in 2008. But Whereas in Buttigieg's case, it was only confined to that segment and sort of like Gary Hart or Bill Bradley, who also appealed to a similar um, segment of the, the Democratic Party. He just basically was dead once you started getting into all of the states where black voters just dominate the Democratic primary. Yeah, I think if his brand is managerial competence, it's been irreparably damaged by this particular scandal, to say nothing of all the other 
switches he's fallen asleep at. But as Phil said, uh, Secretary Pete does like his privacy. And who doesn't? Everybody likes their privacy. You've heard Rich talk about how important it is to have ExpressVPN to protect your online privacy. Choosing a VPN you trust is very important, which is why we can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheap and free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers, but ExpressVPN doesn't do this. They've developed a technology, a trusted server, that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. And there's speed. ExpressVPN now uses Lightway, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. I've tried many VPNs in the past, and they can sometimes slow your connection, but ExpressVPN is always blazing fast and lets me stream videos in HD quality with zero buffering. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart is how easy it is to use. You don't need any technical skills to get set up. Just fire up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Even your grandparents could do it. And it's not just me saying this. CNET, Business Insider, The Verge, and many other tech journalists rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. My link, expressvpn.com editors. Use it today and get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com editors. Visit expressvpn.com editors to learn more. A couple of days ago, I wrote about this on the corner. There was a uh, poll out by NPR, PBS NewsHour, Marist, which conducted the survey. Uh, and it found some really good news for President Joe Biden. Back in July, in this particular poll, he was scraping the bottom of the barrel with 36% support for his job approval. It's rocketed up to 46% today among adults. 10-point improvement over the space of eight months. It's better with registered voters which is kind of unlikely, or unusual rather, 49% of registered voters, a near majority, give the president high marks in office. This is fueled, generally, not by independents, who are still wishy-washy on the, on the president, and certainly not by Republicans, but Democrats. Democrats are coming around. On the eve of the midterm vote, this particular poll found 45%, or I'm sorry, 54% of Democrats and Democrat voting independents saying they would rather jettison Joe Biden from the ticket and take their chances with somebody else. Not anymore. Today that has flipped. Now only 45% want to get rid of Joe Biden. They're coming home, and you can check. It's not just this poll. Go to our Real Clear Politics. He's at his highest average job approval rating that he's had since October of 2021. Phil, I don't know if you think this is unusual or not. I mean, Joe Biden didn't have much of a honeymoon, but the trajectory of his support is going in the wrong direction historically. Right around now, he should be fading, not getting better. What are we watching? Uh, I think that there are a few things. I think that one is obviously he did better than expected in the midterms. So a lot of Democratic fears that it was a sinking ship um, were assuaged. Um, he benefits from the realization among Democrats that there's no clear, obvious plan B. Um, uh, that Harris is is clearly would be a worse option, and that um, a you know a bitter primary between Pritzker and and Newsom and Harris would probably 
also um, have its drawbacks, and it's not clear any of them would be better than Biden. Uh, also, the politics is about expectations. Um, Biden went into his State of the Union address, and typically State of the Unions uh, at this in modern politics don't move the needle much. Um, however, if you're starting at a very low point and you go to, uh, you, you can go, uh, there's some room to gain. Uh, and he showed in that speech that he wasn't like, he was able to deliver a full speech. He was, there was some back and forth with Republicans. He didn't look like a, a totally doddering old man. Uh, most of his problems tend to be when he starts to go all, rattle off the cuff and, and start to tell old yarns and so forth. The The problem for Democrats, though, is that this may end up hurting them in the long run because essentially th this was the window for them, if there were to be a plan B, to try to gear up for a plan B. And that window... If it's not closed, it's probably, it's it's very close to closed. And so the difficulty for Democrats is that now they're kind of stuck with Biden. So it's sort of one thing to have a period where, okay, you don't do quite as bad as expected in the midterms, still lose control of the House of Representatives. Um, you are able to look, you know, be able to, give one speech, but what's a campaign going to be like when you're holding events in multiple states every day and you're trying to, you know, rile up the crowd, often speaking off the cuff, unplanned circumstances, how do you kind of hold up? He, he wasn't really tested in 2020, as we all remember. He basically just campaigned by giving interviews from his basement there, he didn't have to give a lot of speeches and so forth. Um, and I think the other thing that he's benefited from is that Republicans are at each other's throats. I mean, you had the speaker drama where they were fighting over. Now you've got Trump attacking every Republican as he, he tries to vault through president. So typically if there's, a primary in one party, and then one person's uncontested in the other party. It's often the case that the 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 person is whose president is able to be a bit more above the fray. Madeline, I'm confused by what I think this is a response to. Uh, Phil's right. There's definitely a lot of enthusiasm on the part of Democrats for Joe Biden. I was always of the impression that Joe Biden would run for a second term, just because of the inertia of politics. A lot of people in Washington's jobs depend on him being there, and they would go away in the absence of that. So there's a lot of people in his ear, naturally, who are going to say, you've got to run again, you save us. Uh, we're doomed otherwise. So there's an enthusiasm aspect. But I don't know whether it's that or just a general sense of resignation on the left to their political circumstances. Uh, AP had this poll published on Valentine's Day, you know, a list of possible Democrats to lead the party. Joe Biden is up there, but not prohibitively so. But below him, way below him, are Hakeem Jeffries, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and Bernie Sanders. Hakeem Jeffries just became a minority leader a couple of months ago. I can't imagine he has very high name recognition, not like 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, but all of them are in the same category. And then way down there is the most likely successor, his vice president, that nobody seems to want to succeed the president. So Madeline, what do you think? Enthusiasm or resignation? Yeah. I think it's it's more resignation, and I think you can see this in that not that much has changed in the democratic field since 2020. Um, I mean, th this is of the three reasons that Phil gave for for why you're seeing this uptick in support. The the Democrats doing better in the midterms than they expected. The State of the Union and this natural coalescing around a nominee as it becomes clear he's going to run for re-election. I think it really is the the third one. Uh, the most. I think we've seen, uh, Phil alluded to this, we've seen the, the damage that it does when a party is divided. Um, we're already starting to see that. I mean, the Republicans are in this position just by the nature of things that they're having to jostle. Uh, they're, we're going to start seeing sort of attacks on each other. Um, and this sense of party unity, stability, this is similar things Joe Biden ran on in 2020. He was, he was supposed to be like the normalcy candidate and I think he still has that uh, going for him the, the risk of introducing this risk of the unknown when there's no obvious uh, person to replace him is probably just it's it's not something they're willing to entertain at this point so the character of Joe Biden which the right has tuned into and Democrats recognize is of this kind of buffoonish overly friendly, glad-handing, old-school politician who's so obviously decrepit that he shouldn't hold public office. And all that can be true. But, Dominic, if you have the support of 90% of your party as an incumbent president, you're a hard target, no matter what. No matter what. And Republicans are not as united as Democrats, as Phil said, and as the midterms indicated. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that Republicans weren't unenthusiastic to turn out. And they voted for down-ballot Republican candidates. But there were quite a, a lot of Republicans that were so unpalatable to them that they either didn't vote for the top of the ticket at either the Senate or gubernatorial level or voted for Democrats. And if that's the, that is the condition that pertains in 2024, Joe Biden is in the poll position. All of that is true, Noah. And Joe Biden won, won 51% of the vote in 2020. I mean, this is, this is not a, uh, you know, we, we can't, uh, we can't ignore that. And uh, the idea that Biden was going to get substituted out was always kind of silly. He's the incumbent president of the United States. Sure, he's old. There's a bunch of senators who are older. Uh, sure, he's his health isn't great. John Fetterman's a senator. Um, it, he's he's in better better condition than he is. And so, uh, I I just think that uh, being the incumbent president, winning the primaries in 2020, and in, in as commanding of a way as as Biden did. Again, he didn't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, but that's because. His voters don't live in Iowa, New Hampshire. They live in most of the other states, um, and uh, and and the way that Democrats have have uh, redone their primary calendar to move South Carolina ahead, that's that's great for Biden as well. Nobody else is going to nobody else uh, has has shown the ability to uh, to win that. And when we got later on in the primary, I mean, you look at you know, uh, Joe Biden won every county in Massachusetts against Elizabeth Warren. Uh, who's from Massachusetts, who's supposed to be the kind of person who wins in a place like that. And so uh, the idea that there is some other competitor out there for Democrats, um, you know, we, we they had a huge field in 2020. They had the largest primary field uh, in, in American history and uh, and no one could come close to Joe Biden. So, uh, you know, I, I think this is actually, a, in a way, this is a, this is a good thing in 
you know, this this increase we've seen in, in Biden's popularity, because I think it's, it'll help to remind Republicans that we can't just uh, we can't, that they can't just uh, rely on what they think about Joe Biden and they can't just say, oh, he's just he's just an old guy. He doesn't have a chance. Um, I think this serves as a good reminder. He does have a chance, and it really matters that you nominate a good candidate in 2024 who can actually take the fight to him in a way that's credible with uh, a majority of the American people. Yeah, I don't know if any listening is laboring under that misapprehension, but there is probably a lot of Republicans out there who, who think that this guy is just inert and is a pushover, and you got to reassess um, because the evidence is uh, is before your eyes that he's a harder target than a lot of people probably think in 2024 if he runs for re-election, which I think he will. Uh, we're going to do a re, uh, an exit question style on this one, just because we can't not do this. Joe Biden, I'm sorry, not Joe Biden, Donald Trump's uh, grand jurors media blitz. Young lady by the name of Emily Kors. Oh, she's 30, she's not that young, but she's uh, she's vivacious. She's in a whirlwind tour of the press, giving interviews to NBC News, New York Times, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, among others, where she's spilling all the beans. She's talking, she's revealing the names of the witnesses who testified before the grand jury, including uh, Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, sharing her impression of the witnesses, um, talking about the degree to which some of them were immunized. Uh, she foreshadowed the grand jury's recommendations, saying, you know, this isn't rocket science, it's what's going to happen here. And she's very flip about this whole process in kind of an obnoxious way, musing about how cool it would be to swear in Donald Trump and uh, talking about how she was swearing in other witnesses while holding a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle ice cream pop, which she received at a party held by a prosecutor's office, all of which is exceedingly weird. Uh, I saw, saw a few clips of her on NBC, and I don't think I saw her blink once. She is very thrilled by the opportunity to, to receive all the attention she's getting. But a lot of people are freaking out about it. Um, MSNBC analyst uh, uh, Barbara McQuaid has this piece on uh, MSNBC where she's talking about how uh, this is just going to destroy the prosecution against Donald Trump. Quote, a blabbing grand jury threatens to upend the whole premise and gives, quote, grounds for a claim of violation of the due process rights of the accused. Doubtlessly so. Um, guys, exit question, two-part exit question. Does this upend the effort to prosecute Donald Trump uh, for what is alleged against him in, in uh, Georgia? And is he the luckiest human being to have ever been born? Because this seems like this happens all the time. His adversaries either blow it with their excess zeal or demonstrate that they are guilty of precisely what they're accusing Donald Trump of. Uh, Phil, you first. Um I'd say yes, I think it probably blows up this particular prosecution. And I'd say that certainly Trump is one of the luckiest humans um, in modern history. But I think he also somewhat makes his own law by driving his opponents so crazy that they ended up doing really bizarre and counterproductive things. Madeline. Yeah, they could. Um, Trump's team could easily get this dismissed uh, based on jury grand jury impropriety. So I think uh, that also answers the second question, as there's a pattern <laughs> of lucky behavior. <laughs> Dominic, uh, yeah, it certainly doesn't help. Uh, certainly does not help the uh, prosecution in Georgia, and uh, and yeah, I'm having a hard time thinking of anyone 
luckier than Donald Trump. I was trying to think if there was somebody out there, but I mean, just the good fortune to be able to run against Hillary Clinton in a national election, that alone makes you uh, one of the luckiest people alive. I mean, that is pure luck. But I mean, there's a certain unanimous across the board on both of those questions. I'm there too. But he does make his own luck to a certain degree by just driving his opponents so completely insane that they throw rationality right out the window. And, you know, if the press was as biased against Donald Trump as, as they are, and as Machiavellian as the right thinks they are, they wouldn't have put this woman on camera. They know that this would taint a grand jury, but the story was just too darn good, and she's just too, too much of a character to, to not give her the space that she clearly wants. So, yes, Donald Trump... Very fortunate person. Um, before we move on to some... Oh, but you know what? I actually wanted to bring your attention to Jeff Baylor's com, uh, column on, on, the, uh, on the corner, Michael Beschloss, Truther, which, in which the historian, the famous historian Michael Beschloss, who I've met and who is a really nice guy and has written some pretty good books, The Conquerors is fantastic as a book goes, but he mused about the degree to which maybe there was someone's deliberate effort to damage the case against the ex-president by putting this lady out there. And that just is, Occam's razor suggests that this is the kind of behavior we've been seeing from the president's, former president's opponents for quite some time. It's unlikely to be a grand conspiracy to undermine the anti-MAGA movement. So go check out Jeff's column if you can. Um, before we move on to some lighter stuff, I do want to make note of the fact that today, February 24th, 2023, is the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is the greatest geopolitical challenge of the 21st century so far, and its outcomes remain far from certain, with many very bad potential outcomes that are still possible. Uh, so at least from the perspective of those of us who regard American hegemony and the global stability and the global marketplace that we enjoy as a result um, and find it a blessing and not a problem to be fixed. This is something that deserves your attention. I'll have a lot more to say on this in the coming days, but let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Dominic, you're reading a book that, a book that you pilfered from the office, but you're very much enjoying it. That's right. The uh, National Review Office has a bunch of books that are scarcely read, and so I picked up one of them, which is... Uh, by uh, Wilhelm Rupka, who I've mentioned on this podcast before. It's called Economics of the Free Society. Um, if I was teaching a introductory economics class, I would assign it as the textbook. It's wonderful. Uh, Rupka was a great uh, German free market economist. He was one of the uh, people who uh, was sort of the ideological backing for the Wirtschaftswunder in West Germany after after World War II. Um but uh, you can tell from reading this book that he was also just a great principles of economics professor because he's just great at explaining the basics and uh, and doing it in a way that uh, that uh, that that really really makes makes clear uh, why economics is important and 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 how how the world works. Madeline, you are back from your honeymoon. Congratulations on your marriage. Didn't Thank want to you. get away from, without saying that, but you had a spectacular honeymoon. And you need to fill us in on it so we can all be as jealous as those of us on the editors already are. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yes, we went to Venice and then Paris. And uh, I was saying before we started recording that um, I've basically, from all the things we splashed out on, I have enough light items for the rest of the year. <laughs> but I'll just I'll just pick one for today. And that was a cooking class we did in Venice. Uh, we went to an Italian lady's home and uh, learned how to make 
pasta, various types of pasta from scratch, um, gnocchi, tiramisu, drank quite a lot of Prosecco as well. And then to end the wonderful evening, we, we left to go back to our hotel in a water taxi, which is a boat. I think this is the only time in my life I've ever been excited to be uh, in a taxi. So is this a gondola? <laughs> like where they wear the striped shirts and so we so we did do a gondola ride, um, but no, this this was just like a it's just a boat. So in order to get around like in a cab, it's just you get into a boat. So it's really fun. Yeah, interesting infrastructure over there. <laughs> uh, from from those heights, we descend down to the depths of despair. Unfortunately, Phil <laughs> Phil's not having as good a time. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, so I I was um out down a refrigerator this week, um, waking up one uh, the other morning to find that all the goods in the uh, freezer were floppy and ice cream melted um, to realize that basically I had a non-functioning um, um, refrigerator and the tech made it clear that basically one of those classic things you could spend money to fix it, but there's no idea of how long it, the actual fix could work. So it was, it had seen better days. So it was time to get a new refrigerator. So I'm now excited to be in theory on Monday. If the supply chain holds up, I will have a new refrigerator. So I'm looking forward to that. It's always easier to, to buy the new refrigerator and replace it. When we first bought our first house, there was a Sub-Zero that came with it. And when we moved in, the day we moved in, we opened it up and the whole wall had ballooned out. Like there was botulism in the wall. It was shocking. Uh, and yeah, that's the sort of thing where it's like, you could replace that with a part and it would cost you as much just to buy a new unit. Um, so refrigerators are frustrating. Me, I already talked about cooking last week. That was my first hobby, my, my only of two hobbies. So I'll talk about my second, which is, Landscaping, I have this piece of fallow land right next to my garage that's sort of on a slope, and it's just a hideous eyesore that the weeds take over every year. So I'm trying to dig it out and maybe, you know, do I'm drawing, I'm reading gardening books, try to landscape a design out here. I'm going to do this in the spring, but it's all rocks. I'm on this hillside, and it's all glacial rocks. So we got to get some soil in here to build out this project, but I'm, I'll be filling you in on how the landscaping goes over the course of the next couple of weeks. Time for editor's picks. And I'm going to go first because I want to draw your attention to the estimable Dan McLaughlin's piece on the corner in which he just, he talks about the ways in which there is a quote, strange need to pretend that Ron DeSantis is pro-Putin. He does a fantastic job of highlighting the extent to which a lot of the commentary, particularly on the left, hears what they want to hear from Ron DeSantis with regards to his support or lack thereof for America's commitment to Ukraine's collective defense. And they describe the way that Ron DeSantis has gone full Trump on Ukraine. That was uh, Jonathan Chait, Steve Bennon, half a dozen other people, all of whom seem to have not heard the words that came out of Ron DeSantis's mouth. And he does a very good job of explicating what the governor of Florida actually believes on this subject, which appears to be nothing like what his critics think it is. Um, Madeline. What have you got? So I took two weeks off, obviously, for uh, my wedding and honeymoon and uh, needed to get caught up with everything I'd missed because I really, truly disconnected from uh, Twitter and news and everything like that. So there's no better place to go 
than Jim Garrity's Morning Jolt. And I have just been reading the last two weeks worth of them and they're all great. So highly recommend for anyone who takes a few weeks off. Very good. Phil. So I just have, because we talked about Emily Kors, the bizarre uh, grand, Trump grandeur, um, I'd want to point people to a pair of pieces we ran on that. One was uh, by Jim Garrity, Georgia Granger imperils Trump case with bizarre mediator. Um, and Jim just does a great job of, if you haven't been following just sort of explaining all of her media appearances. Um, and then uh, Andy McCarthy wrote um, a follow-up, Will Donald Trump Luck Out Again, in which he takes his, his background as a prosecutor and understanding of the criminal justice system and just gets into the sort of legal details of why this is such a headache for prosecutors. So I think that if you read them together um, and you, you haven't been following this, uh, this, this issue that much, I think you'll have a, a really solid understanding of what is going on. That's great. Dominic? Well, like Noah, my pick is also a Dan Corner post. It is called uh, Brian Kemp says that it's time for the Georgia GOP to leave the Georgia GOP, which sounds counterintuitive and strange, but if you know anything about the... Uh, state party apparatus in a lot of different states in the U.S., uh, especially on the Republican side. They can be more of a problem for winning elections than they are a a solution. And uh, Georgia was one of the best examples of this, where the state party basically came out against Brian Kemp, and Brian Kemp proved them wrong by overwhelmingly winning his primary and then uh, overwhelmingly winning the general election against Stacey Abrams as well. Kemp's a great conservative leader, and I hope uh, wish him the best. And there's a lot of lessons there for other state-level parties. I'm looking at you, Arizona. A lot of you have lost your minds. You need somebody to come correct you. Um, good recommendations for all. Follow up on them, dear listeners, if you would. But that is going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you, Phil. And thank you to Brian A. Garner's Modern English Usage from Oxford University Press and, of course, ExpressVPN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.